0: Thank you, worship team. Thanks for showing up today. Hey, sometimes in life, the most important thing you can do is just show up. Also, I just want to thank real quick the people who gave blood yesterday. You know who you are, so I won't name you all by name, because that'd be ridiculous. But thank you for coming out and giving blood. Um, We had... Nearly 20 successful donations yesterday, so it was great. They'll be back again in the fall. They love to take our blood. And uh, seriously, we had six first-time donors, which is incredible. We had students out of the youth group that donated, so thank you for youth that stepped up to bleed for us. And, um, but seriously, thank you, everybody who came out. People donated. People that couldn't be there that brought out food for us to eat. That was very kind of you. I enjoyed it probably too much. But um, I do want to just say thanks to everybody because it is a simple way we can say to our community, you matter. We're never even going to meet you, but we're willing to bleed for you, to give you of something that you're in desperate need of. So thanks again to everybody who came out. So um, as I was planning our new series, um, I... uh, I spent far too much time looking for this video clip I wanted to show you. Anybody a fan of Gilligan's Island? As I was a child, it was one of my very favorite shows. I wasn't alive when it was first on, but it's been in reruns (laughs) since it came on. So for those of you who are wondering, how old is that guy? Not that old. But uh, it's been in reruns, and in case you didn't know, it's one of three shows that they say literally the amount of times it's played, it's probably on somewhere in the world 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. The other two that they say are like that are MASH and Seinfeld. That Those three shows, somewhere at some point during the day, worldwide, those shows are always playing. And uh, I dream of living in that place. Um, but I love the show Gilligan's Island, and I spent hours looking for this one clip, and I could not find it. But um, I'm going to try to paint you a picture. They are trying to figure out, they hear a radio broadcast and they're trying to figure out who is actually at fault for the loss of the minnow. And so they decide they're going to recreate the actual shipwreck, to the point where they have people throwing buckets of water on Gilligan and Skipper during it. And Gilligan grabs the anchor and throws it over because they should have been able to anchor and keep from going so far off course. And he grabs the anchor, throws it over, and one of the thoughts was, he must not have ever thrown in the anchor, and it's not tied to anything. So basically, he grabs the anchor, throws it over, and they discover why they got so far off. It's because he threw the anchor in, and it's somewhere on the bottom of the ocean, only to prove once again, poor Gilligan. An anchor has a purpose. An anchor is not just to hold something down. It is designed to do that, but there's more to it than that. An anchor is to hold something in place, in the midst of a storm. Or even if you're just sitting on a lake on a relaxing day, and it's time to jump off the front of the pontoon boat and swim around, as I so often enjoy doing, You put the anchor down so that when you pop up from swimming around, the boat's not on top of your head, nor is it 200 yards from you. An anchor holds it in place, but it's only effective if it's got something connected between that boat and the anchor. And so an anchor is not meant to drag something down, it's not meant to hold something back, it's meant to keep something from getting off course and getting lost. The reason an anchor is effective is because it's heavy, and it grabs hold of something, something solid. An anchor is much smaller than a ship, so why is it able to hold something so big? Well, because it's not facing the wind. It's not facing the other things. It's there, and it's grabbing, and it's grabbing something solid. But an anchor is not effective if it doesn't have any weight to it. If you throw it and it goes up in the air, that's a kite, not an anchor whole different thing. The idea is that it goes down and it grabs and it's solid and it keeps you from drifting and getting lost. And one of the things that causes us so much strife in life is that we drift and we struggle to find our purpose and our meaning and we struggle to find significance, we struggle to find why we matter and we look in the wrong place And we're not attached to anything because we live in a world and in a society that says don't commit to anything. If you don't believe me, look at social clubs and fraternal organizations. Membership is so far down in many of them, they've completely gone out of business. How often do you see anything more than an Odd Fellows Lodge, an actual Odd Fellows meeting? They don't exist anymore. Again, they were a group of weird guys that did strange things. Maybe that's part of it, but they don't exist anymore. Did you know that there's over $100 million in property owned by um, the Shriners? And yet, there's one-tenth of the Shriners' clubs that there were in 1950. And I was like, one-tenth? Wow, I would have thought it was less than that. Other than them riding in parades in tiny cars, I didn't know they did anything else. At one time, they mattered. But people don't want to belong to things. People don't want to commit to things. People don't want to sign up and show up. It's true. Watch the number of things that we offer that say, hey, come and be a part of whatever, and I can't tell you how many people go, oh, I'll see. Or maybe. If I got nothing, what they're really saying is, eh, if nothing else better comes along, and I feel like leaving the house. Then I'll do it. <laughs> to me, when I was growing up, a great weekend is when I did like You know, I did something Friday night with my friends, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, went to church Sunday morning, did something all day Sunday afternoon, went to church Sunday night, and then we had people over after. That was a great weekend. Now a great weekend is, oh, I never left the house once. (laughs) What a great weekend. Because I don't want to be a part of anything either. I don't want to have to belong, because if I belong, something might be expected of me. Something might be required of me. I tell people all the time, when they'll say, oh, we should stress membership more at our church, and I go, no, we shouldn't. People don't want to be members. And as soon as I start to talk about membership, what I learned when I was in San Diego, as soon as we started talking about it, our church attendance would drop. Why? Because people are afraid what's going to be... We weren't even saying you have to be a member to do anything. We would just talk about membership, and we'd watch our church attendance drop about, it was a larger church, but we dropped 30 people in average attendance within a month if we talked about membership for a month. That wasn't saying you have to do anything. That was just us talking about it. Because people are so afraid of what's going to be required of me if I join if I become a part. And so we don't want to be a part of anything. We don't want to be connected to anything. We don't want anything to hold us down. But the problem is then we can't find purpose. We can't find significance. We're drifting all over and we wonder why, why is life like this? Why do I even exist? And so then we try to find our significance in other things. And they're not all bad things. We try to find our significance in our family. Our family, that's how I'll define myself. I'll be a great husband, a good father, a great provider. I'll take care of things. I'll have the nicest lawn in the neighborhood. I'll make more money. I'll do this, I'll do that. And so we try to find significance in things without actually having anything that really holds us down. And if you don't believe me, look at the disposable nature even of family. They say 50% of marriages end in divorce. Again, this isn't a criticism. If you've divorced, and I've told you before, there are real and genuine reasons why you may need to. But we, do, we view family as disposable because if it doesn't work for me, then I'm going to go find something else that does. And when it starts to require something of me, man, I don't like that. I'll be a good provider. I'll sign the checks. You figure out the kids. But don't ask me to engage emotionally. Because we don't understand. We have a greater purpose. We're going to talk next week is all about purpose. The entire message next week. So I just want to just touch on that today. But what I'm really going to talk about next week is understanding our purpose. And when we don't understand our purpose, our call in life. When we don't understand that, then there will be thousands of things that just get in the way of us becoming who God created us to be. Because how can I be who God created me to be when I have no clue who that is? Do I have a full picture? No, I've said oftentimes, it's like a giant puzzle, and we have pieces. But even with pieces of a puzzle, I can tell if it's kittens or Battlestar Galactica. At least I should be able to, unless it's kittens in Battlestar Galactica, which would be awesome. So people drift because they don't know who they're attached to. Are we attached to God? Because if so, that becomes our anchor and that becomes our focal point. But if I'm attached to kind of the things around church, but not really to God, because that seems like it requires an awful lot of me. What do I view as my hope and my salvation? Too many people believe that they are their own salvation and they are their only hope. My 401k, that's my salvation. My job is my salvation. My witty personality and winning disposition <laughs> becomes my salvation. But the truth is, if my salvation is not in God, if my hope is not in God, then I'm always going to have, it's, it's peripheral to that, because I'm a Christian, and I've got to be moral, but it's not really, it's really going to come down to what I can do. What can I produce? What can I achieve? What can I become? And then you also have to know that the storm will come. But the storm will also come to an end. When I'm in the middle of the storm, sometimes it feels like there's no light at the end of this tunnel. My marriage is a mess. My jo- I get laid off from my job. I'm behind on car payments. All these things are building up, and it's never going to get any better. And yet, and the reality is, that storm, like all others, will come to an end, and the sun will shine again, and the rain will stop. This morning, my dogs woke me up because it was hailing. I think they wanted me to see it. They were so excited. And they ran to the back door, as they like to do early in the morning, and I let them out. And if some of you know, I have a Chihuahua-Dachshund mix who does not like to be wet, touch grass, um... She 'd be happiest if she could just live on my lap and go to the bathroom there, never getting off. She 's a bit stupid, um She may be a special needs dog, we know that, and we love her anyway. And so I open the door. She goes out the hail. She literally goes out and does an immediate U-turn and comes in and looks at me like, "Why'd you do that to me?" I was like, "You got me up." Ten minutes later, the hail was done, and it was sunny. And I was just about to walk out the door to leave for church. And then they were like, okay, now. And the chihuahua's like, now I'm ready to go out. And I walk out, and she's gingerly trying to not actually touch the ground as she walks across it because she doesn't like anything wet. And she lives in Seattle. (laughs) And she goes out, and she she goes to the bathroom, and then she just comes and starts whining like I'd done something to her. That's the same thing we do, you guys. We think this storm's never going to end. And then when it ends, we go and we still don't like it. It's still not what I want. It's still not the perfect day. It's still not perfect. My life isn't perfect. And Jeff, you said that if I would follow God, my life would be better. And I go, no, I never say that. (laughs) I don't think your life will be. What I think is that we have somebody to see us through that imperfection of this life we live in. Things are still broken. No matter how much faith you have, I'm not promising you a new car. I'm not even promising you that your other car won't get repossessed. What I'm promising you is this. You have someone to walk through the pain and the ugliness and the muddiness and the murkiness with you. And believe it or not, that's better than the promise of something great if you'll only do what I tell you to. There's something great to come. Romans 5, 7-13 through 13 tells us there, tells us this. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us, to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers and to the Gentiles might, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy as it is written. For this reason, I confess to you among the Gentiles. O sing to your name, And again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall have hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is written by Paul because there's a whole group saying, well, those other people can come in as long as they look like us, eat like us, dress like us, follow our traditions. And Paul looks and he says, no. Their hope is in God, not in your traditions, not in your dress, not in your laws, not in your rules. Too often times, we do the same thing. We'll put our hope in God, but everybody else better look just like me. My friends, that's legalism, and Paul is saying you don't have to be bound by it. Those of you who want to follow Jesus the Messiah, come and follow him. Whether you're Jewish or Gentile, black, white, old, young, man, woman, everybody's invited, everybody's equal. Let's come in, let's worship him, let's kneel down before him, let's pray to him, let's be a community of believers, not defined by and separated by our differences, but finding our hope in the God who sees us all. When we look to say, people can only be in if they're like me, you can only belong if you dress like me and act like me and talk like me. That's almost the antithesis of what he says God is doing in us and through us. And he's looking and he's saying, God is here and he's here for you to give you a hope, to give you a purpose, to give you a belonging. And yet we keep trying to find it in other things. And so then we drift and the storms are going to come. And when the storm hits us, we don't know what to do because I thought everything was going to be good because now I'm in God. God. But in reality, we're not really anchored in him, so we're torn back and forth and thrown all over looking for what's going to hold us. Jeremiah twelve five and 6 says this, If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted, they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? For even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called a multitude after you. Do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. When you're going into battle from a military standpoint, the reason they break you and remake you is so that you're equipped and prepared. The drill instructors at basic training aren't just mean guys. They're there, to make you into what they need you to become. And so you show up thinking you're in shape, and they teach you, oh no, oh no, you're not, to a whole new level. As I was having a conversation this past week with my brother-in-law specifically about this, some of you know he's been in the military, he's a colonel, he's been there for 33 years in the military. It's shaped and defined kind of who he is even like when he's not like in uniform you look and you go oh yeah i guess i can see that like by his haircut by his stature by his stance that's who he is sometimes we'll wonder how could he have obtained that rank when he's still just this goofy guy who's you know who is oh, gosh, G, shocks because the shocks because that's how he grew up seven kids on a farm no electricity two bedroom house they had 12 cows that they would milk. And yet, here he is now, as a colonel in the military, a battalion commander, literally has thousands of men who do what he says. I said, how? How do, you, how do you get them from point A to point B? And he goes, well, I don't have to be with them in basic training. I'm like, right, okay. So they come to you after at some point. What do you do? And he said, well, first off, you have to know what your purpose is. And everybody's purpose And everybody's goal, even in the military, we have different purposes. Because when you know your role, it allows you to fulfill that mission. And knowing that you have a critical role gives you a sense of worth. Because the engineers are just as critical as the infantry. Because if we can't build bridges and we can't clean up our mess when we're done, then we're going to have trouble. Supply chain is key to effective combat. If the people on the battlefield can't get water when they're in the Middle East or can't get food when they're in the jungle, then they're not very effective as fighters. Air support is just as important as transport. And they're just as important as ground forces. And everybody has different jobs to do. But one isn't the only one that's important. Because we can't do one job without the other. And you have to know what your purpose is. You have to learn what your job is. And you learn it so well that you can recite portions of a book that define and describe your job. You have to train for what you're going to do. Even supply line people have to train. They have to understand. They have to predict. They have to know. And finally... You react. The situation changes when you're in live battle. But if we're trained, we can react to any challenge ahead. My brother-in-law landed on the ground in Iraq on March 1st, 2003. April 1st, 2003. March 23rd, we had started dropping bombs. And on April 1st, 2003, he landed on the ground. And at that point, it was just a country wide open, and we were trying to take something. And the insurgents had left an airport south of Baghdad, and they go in because we need somewhere we can land planes, and they secure this airport. And he said they put up almost a mile of perimeter fencing, razor wire and fencing. And he said, and they're sitting there with no buildings except for one burned-out terminal, and they're looking across their Humvees. They put, like, a little map, and they have to decide what's going to go where. And that's his job, is to decide what buildings are going to go where. And here's the order in which they go up. And here's the order in which we build sleeping facilities and food facilities and all these other things. And he has no materials. But tomorrow... I'm supposed to have materials, so I'm going to lay it out tonight, and tomorrow we're going to start building, and he has such confidence in the supply line that's coming behind him that they're going to bring wood and stuff for tents, and stuff for, and he's in charge of what's called vertical construction, and I said, what's vertical construction? He said buildings. I said, well, what's horizontal construction? Roads and sidewalks? I was like, well, how do you build buildings where you don't know where the roads and sidewalks are? He said, because they got a job to do and it's their job to know where to put them. It's my job to build the buildings. And he said, they'll get me roads and sidewalks to wherever my buildings are because my buildings are going to go where they've told me to put my buildings. So he starts building things seemingly at random because there's an order to it and they need to figure out in 90 days, in a year, if in five years we're still here, we need to have this make sense. We can't just slap up a bunch of buildings. So he starts building buildings with other engineers, with guys who are doing land surveying, laying it out and building. And he said, when it's all said and done, you look at an aerial photo, and it's a perfect map of what you would want to see. That only happens because you know your purpose. You train for your job. You learn, and then you execute what you have to do. You react as the situation might change. You get somewhere and there's a giant crater from something. Well, we can't obviously build right here. So now we have to adjust and figure out what we're going to do. And the same is true in our lives. We face challenges. Life is not always going to go smoothly. People are going to die because we're all mortal. People are going to Throw a wrench in your plans. As you know, three weeks ago tomorrow, my mom broke her leg in three places. I've talked about this. My mom's older, my dad is elderly, and it changes everything because my mom is my dad's caretaker. So my dad sits at home upset that she won't just come home already. And when I have the conversation with dad, he's not getting it. She can't. Yes. Well, he didn't say yes to me. When I looked at him and said, it could be 16 weeks, Dad. That's what the surgeon said. His only response was, no. I don't know what to do with that no, Dad. Because he would say, turn that no into a yes. I guess, I don't know. What, how do I respond to that one word, no? Wasn't how I planned on spending my spring. Didn't plan on being there. But I was there two weeks ago, and I'm going to go back in a few weeks, and I'm trying to help them process through this. And what are we going to do with Dad? People ask how my mom's doing. She's doing great. She loves it. It's like a giant slumber party with 40 brand new friends. It's all day long. I can't even get a hold of her on her cell phone because she's busy at bingo or crafting. She doesn't even do crafts. I was like, you went to craft? She goes, oh, I just sat and talked. I was like, okay, that makes sense. She's doing puzzles with her roommate who's 99 which is really sweet because her roommate can't figure out how the piece, she just sticks any two pieces together. It's great. My mom just comes behind her and rearranges them. But it wasn't what I planned on. This isn't how I figured my life would go. My dad had a stroke a few years back. Not how I figured my life would go. There are things that are going to hit you that you didn't expect. Now I have to react to them. But if I know who I am in God, I know how to react to them. Do I know every answer? Nope, but it's not going to overwhelm me. Attacks are going to come. People are going to come against you. Things are going to come against you. Life is going to come against you. But when I know who I am in God, nothing, nothing separates that anchor of who he is from me floating around. When I'm anchored in God, I know exactly who I am and what I need. So here's my questions for you today as we leave. Number one, What is your anchor? Is it God, or is it something you've created so that you feel secure? Is it, well, I kind of anchor to the church, but then not really. Am I willing to commit to something and make God my anchor? And if so, how is this reflected in my day-to-day actions and in my day-to-day life? If God is really my anchor, what am I doing to prepare for the next storm? The next two weeks, next week we're talking about purpose, and in two weeks we're talking about spiritual disciplines that we put into our life if we want to remain anchored. It's really easy to say, we'll do these things, but it's not that simple. It's not that simple because just because I do these things, things don't go perfectly. Our kids make bad decisions and our parents get sick. And somebody runs a red light and hits you and alters your life forever. We have trauma from childhood incidents. We have things that we're dealing with day to day, and we don't want to be a downer, so we try to put on the happy face, but sometimes it's just easier to stay away from people. And I'm saying in the midst of all of that, you have to determine what is your anchor, and what are you doing to prepare for the next storm? Because that's what God has for us. He has that constant that, we're, that he's there. It doesn't say it'll be perfect. In fact, it says, if you read Hebrews 11, you're going to face trials. And I'm not just talking about a bad parking spot at the mall. I'm talking about real trials. Things that really come against you. And you're going to face those. And if your faith is in me, then you're going to have something that's constant. But if your faith is in something else, that can be wiped out in a second. Father God, I thank you for who you are, and I thank you that you are our anchor. I thank you that you look at us and you give us hope, that you give us purpose. And God, next week as we look at that, I just pray that we would better understand what that purpose is for us individually as well as us corporately. God, I pray that we would be honest with ourselves this week and ask ourselves, is God my anchor? And if not, what is my anchor? God, press us to be honest with ourselves because that's the only way we can move forward and grow. We thank you for all that you do in our lives. In your name, amen. If you'd like prayer today, um, uh, some of the board members are going to be up here to pray with you, and we want you to know that anything, your family, illness, just your job situation, anything at all that you want prayer for, they'll be right up here to pray for you, and we invite you and encourage you to come up for prayer. Otherwise, we'll see you guys next week. Have a great week.